Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, we have with us one of the most respected names on the street when it comes to analyzing uh, companies in terms of, I guess, um, future cash flows. And he's done the pretty much the best, as far as I can see, across the industry in terms of his returns. Dan Ives joins us from Wedbush Securities, where he's Managing Director of Equity Research. Dan, I'm going to kind of rip up the script here, because I know we want to talk about the China tech crackdown, and I definitely want to hit on Tesla as well in a moment, because Elon Musk is here with me, not with me per- personally and physically, but you know, within a 20-mile radius in Berlin at his Gigafactory. But we just got a consumer sentiment number that um, the UMish director, Richard Curtin, called stunning. The loss of confidence, he said, was stunning. He said, over the past half century, the sentiment index has only recorded larger losses in six other surveys, and it's dropped the most since 2011. What is going on in the U.S. economy? Look, I think what we're starting to see really coming out of COVID, it's very uneven in terms of this recovery. And and I think it it really is caused almost more and more of a move to some of these safety blanket names, especially in tech, a lot of the large cap names. Because investors, right now, they they almost have a flashlight in a dark tunnel. They're still trying to figure out what the fundamental stories look like. Consumers, as well as enterprise, second half of the year. And and we continue to believe this is going to be uneven. But you have to focus on the secular winners. And we believe tech, it's still a risk on train, a green light to tech into your end. Dan, on that note, we're taking a look at shares of Microsoft, right? Some of the big tech companies that you cover that are trading at record highs. And I am curious how much of this is a defensive move where with yields falling, we like the discount cash flows or are these valuations really justified in your opinion? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's definitely a bit defensive on, on some of these tech names like a Microsoft, but a lot of it really comes down to we are in the midst of a fourth industrial revolution. I mean, $2 trillion of digital transformation spend on the enterprise and on consumer. When you look at what they're doing in Redmond, when the Dell leading the charge, Microsoft's continuing to gain more and more share in the cloud. And that, what we're seeing is just a further re-rating of the stock from Microsoft. But you're seeing across the whole tech sphere in terms of names like Apple, names across cybersecurity and cloud, because investors are starting to realize this wasn't just a pull forward we've seen the last 18 months. It's the called first, second inning of what really what's going to be a transformation in terms of the tech sector. You have a $1,000 price target, I believe, on Tesla. You have it as an outperform. You've done much better than your peers in terms of rating the stock uh, with a 9% return. Your peers' average return is down 15%. W- what is happening, though, in terms of boosting production, in terms of getting out the solar cell business, in terms of, you know, achieving all that he's promised, like the Mack truck, I guess it's an 18-wheeler that he that he wants to bring out. I mean, can he really do all this stuff, or does that not matter to, you know, his discounted cash flows also not matter to Tesla? Yeah, I, I think for right now in Tesla, they almost have a high-class problem, because Every car that they make, they sell. 
It's really more of a supply capacity issue, which is why he's in Berlin right now, and which is why they're such a focus on the build-out of Berlin, having that flagpole in Europe, instead of just shipping cars from China, which is a logistical disaster, as well as Austin. Because right now we're in the green tidal wave. We're just in the early stages of it. And Tesla, when Musk is looking out, of course we have Cybertruck talking about long-haul trucking as well, these are aspirations. I don't, I don't think they're just aspirations. I, I think these are models that we will continue to see come out. But for now, for the street, it's about Model 3, Model Y, and, of course, the rebound in China for Tesla. That is what will continue to drive the stock. A part of the overhang on Tesla this year after a Cinderella story last year, it's more competition from GMs to VWs, you know, to the pure plays. And that's been I want to see the, the I want to see the Cybertruck. That's what I want to see on the street. <laughs> Dan, you know, speaking of China, go out there for us, but but go broader. I think what is fascinating is the re-rating that you've had to see on change it. You know, with a stroke of a pen, Beijing has told us in the last month that they can entirely change the rules. How do you evaluate that on a fundamental basis with all the headline risk of China tech crackdown? Well, right now, I mean, for investors, not just in the U.S., but globally, you really can't own China tech here. I mean, the rules continue to get changed, and it's really been a horror movie you know, for investors in the China tech sector. More and more, that money is rotating to U.S. tech. Even though there's regulatory risk, of course, within the Beltway, this just doesn't compare the scale and scope of what Beijing is doing with this crackdown. And it's something where, you know, if you own these names on Friday, you don't know what's going to happen Monday morning. And it's really the risk off in the China sector is one. It's hard for us to look someone in the mirror and own some of these broader names that have regulatory risk, like the Babas, the Didis, and others. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Dan. It's always a pleasure to get you on, and uh, I think you had a lot of insight for our investors also, or for our listeners also, point out um, to people that they can check out the A&R page for Dan Ives and just see um, how he has crushed it in terms mm-hmm. of picking stocks and setting targets. So always good to talk to Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives. We're going to continue to cover this massive drop in consumer sentiment for you. The UMish index falling to a reading of 70. We were looking for more than 80. This is Bloomberg. Now, there is a lot going on in Washington, despite the fact that I believe they're currently in recess. Um, They need to figure out if they're going to pass this $1.2 trillion spending bill before they look at the three and a half trillion dollar resolution moves or uh, reconciliation moves or um, if they're going to, I guess, hold hostage is a bad term, but basically um, make sure they can get the reconciliation um, passed before they agree on the bipartisan bill. Nonetheless, it looks like we're going to get a lot more money spent on infrastructure eventually. Sheetal Prasad joins a small and mid-cap growth portfolio manager as well as equity research analyst Jenison Associates to talk to us about where investors can take advantage if we do. And Sheetal, this is an interesting market because it does look like there's going to be a lot more money spent, at least for now. We do face the possibility of a fiscal cliff in the future, and there are supply chain issues that are really jamming things up a little bit. How do you see the investment environment? 
Well, it's great to be here, Arissa. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I guess what I would say on the infrastructure bill specifically is uh, I think it's meaningful that for the first time, as you, as you talked about, things in D.C., that we're actually able to get something done. Uh, it does show that we've got bipartisan support for investing in our uh, own infrastructure. And I think there's some parts of that bill that are bipartisan, as I mentioned, that, you know, whether it's um, investing in bridges and roads, um, high-speed Internet for rural communities, uh, electric vehicle charging stations, et cetera. Um, having said that, you know, on our team, um, and even I think the markets are not really assuming that this will go through. There's still a lot of wood to chop. Um, from the House in terms of getting this passed. And we've maybe been burned once before uh, on the promise of an infrastructure package. So I don't think we are getting in over our skis on this spending specifically. Having said that, though, um, I think that the pandemic and just what we've seen in terms of the supply chain crunches that you mentioned, um, companies want to have their supply chains closer. And I think we're about to embark on a real onshoring, reshoring capital um, investment renaissance in this country. I hate to try to bring a, a contrary opinion here, though it was interesting yesterday was one of the <laughs> was one of the first times I finally heard someone say, uh, except taxes have to go up if we're going to pay for all of this, and the markets haven't yet priced that in. Well, or growth could pay for it. Yes, if we can grow our way out of our debt, but if we can, you know, how are we, are the, are the markets prepared for potentially higher taxes in order to pay for this? I don't believe that the markets are ready for higher taxes. Now, certainly the Biden administration is saying that there's enough pay-fors for the infrastructure bill by, you know, some of the COVID relief funds and um, unused, um, you know, uh, assistance to the states, et cetera. But I think we know from, I think, the CBO scoring that it's, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and I don't think, and, and, you know, and I think that certainly some members of Congress are really resistant to increase in taxes, whether it's gas taxes, usage taxes, et cetera. So that almost seems like a non-starter, quite frankly, to pay for it. But, um, you know, again, even without the, the $1.2 trillion, um, I think that the, the, you know, the door is open, the gates are open, and, and we're just going to see a lot more investment in, in the country, regardless of what happens in the U.S., uh, you know, from, from the government standpoint. You know, the, the best way that the government throughout history have found to get out of debt is inflating their way out. As someone who looks at, you know, especially small and mid-cap stocks, what's your take on inflation? I, so we've just come off of second quarter earnings season, and I can tell you almost universally, every single company is talking about inflation. And that inflation is either in the form of raw materials, it's in the form of wages, it's in the form of uh, freight and logistics. And, and for some companies, they can you know, pass it through to customers, and, and whether that's consumers or whether that's you know, business-to-business customers. And so I do think that inflation is real. And, you know, what I'm perhaps a bit more concerned about is that the alleviation that many companies were hoping for in the back half of this year and into 2022 seems to be maybe being pushed off to the right. And, and I, the reason I say that is 
you know, the Delta variant, um, you know, for, for certain companies that have supply chains still in Southeast Asia where plants are being shut down for weeks, uh, you know, they're just not yet seeing uh, the, the looseness in the supply chains that we would hope for. So I do think that inflation is there. I do believe that companies are going to price it through as much as possible. And it could, as you said, inflate the economy higher. All right. I think that's all we have time for, unfortunately. But hopefully we can get you back, Chital, because it's fascinating um, to get your take on this, especially as, you know, typically people come on here and talk only about the big cap stocks. Um, I guess in this market, <laughs> it's all about megatechs, right? So it's great to hear from a small and mid-cap growth portfolio manager, Sheetal Prasad from Jenison Associates, talking to us about the expected impact of the infrastructure deal, the possibility of more taxes. I think, sadly, that's always almost an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. I mean, sadly, for those of us who don't like to pay taxes. Well, and with the valuations, I think she had a good point of the markets might not be ready for it. And she had a good point with the five fifty billion dollar bill. We're not looking at it. But with the three and a half trillion dollar bill, we could be looking at higher taxes. And it's just all a matter of how the markets can be prepared for that, Matt. Absolutely. Um, And I think that's one of the problems that a lot of Congress people have with it. James Roste joins us, CIO and founding partner of Coast Capital. And James, Bitcoin, you know, everyone is calling for a crash at 30 grand, and now we're back up at 46,313. What's going on? Hi, hi. Nice to, nice to be with you. Look, I really wouldn't call myself an, an expert on Bitcoin. We, we really are focused on gold and gold miners, um, uh, where we have some very specific thoughts, certainly, and so far as inflation is concerned. Um, the problem we have with Bitcoin is... Um, it's adopted by a lot of people who really want to see it go up, but there really are no natural buyers for it, I don't think, over and above financial speculators. Um, and there seems to be a lot of financial speculators more than ever before, and the amount of capital in the hand of speculators is much greater than ever before, and you can probably blame very low interest rates for that. The, the problem with, with Bitcoin, rather than things like Ethereum or other coins, is it's just flawed. It, it seems to us destined to be worth, if not worth less, than worth certainly a lot less than where it is today, simply because, you know, it's a very inefficient still mechanism for, for, for the transfer of value from one person to another, which is what you need as a currency. And that is a store of value. You know, I just don't think that Bitcoin is the best blockchain based cryptocurrency we'll ever come up with. You know, Ethereum is already a superior um, um, uh, platform. Um, and so why would I want to buy Bitcoin when I know that, uh, uh, you know, an alternative coin w- with a better technology is guaranteed to be developed, already has been developed. And let's call that Bitcoin, too, or Ethereum. And I know that something even better will be developed. Subsequently. Well, why does so, anybody want to buy gold? Yeah. Ah, well, people look uh, a number of reasons. First of all, have you ever, you know, gone to a really nice dinner with, you know, uh, like, like, like uh, you know, someone who wore very nice jewelry and that makes a certain uh, impact? Have you ever gone to Paris and marveled at how beautiful it is? And have you noticed how the rooftops are gilded? Have you, you know, when you got married, uh, what did you, you know, uh, if, you, if you are married and, and, and anyone who's married has my sympathies, man or woman, uh, by the way, uh, uh, when, when you got married, what is the? How did you convey your love? Uh, you know, gold is and has been and will doubtless remain the one, 
commodity that has been a store of value that has been cherished by people around the world for millennia and will continue to be. And guess what? Um, central bankers who know a whole lot more about um, 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 finance and stores of value than than I do certainly, you know, are not buying Bitcoin. They're buying gold, and they're making they're they're doing their best to outlaw Bitcoin. You know, and and I think that from never mind uh, um, the concerns that I just expressed, but from environmental concerns perspective, and also because central banks want to have an ever tighter grip on their local economies, from that perspective as well, I think that they will uh, uh, want to see people certainly not adopt Bitcoin or not adopt you know, uh, these uh, blockchain-based uh, currencies uh, uh, with which to conduct transactions in their countries. I mean, I just, uh, yeah, there are so many hurdles that Bitcoin and blockchain-based currencies, uh, 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 cryptocurrencies face. Um, but, but Taylor, Taylor, save him. And has, you know, <laughs> sorry? You know, Matt's not going to be happy. I'm going to digress a little bit from Bitcoin and, and blockchain. You mentioned inflation when you were talking about gold. We've had a lot of moves in the commodities as of late. You had lumber up yeah. and lumber down, copper up and copper yeah. down. What are the moves in commodities yeah. telling you about that inflation? Well, inflation is upon us and it's real. I have I have a, a, a lot of land in upstate New York that I bought a long time ago, and I have a lot of trees and, and the prices that I'm getting for the offer. Um, I I'm, I'm fancy myself an environmentalist, so I'm not selling my trees. But the prices that I'm getting offered, you know, are, are, are getting to be very attractive. Uh, um, so uh, even now, with lumber prices having come down, it's still meaningfully above. Certainly what I'm getting offered is meaningfully above where, where I was maybe about two years ago. Um, you know, I think that inflation is upon us. You cannot have the most important injection of money into global systems and not have it impact the prices of goods that are limited in supply and limited in production. You just cannot. And here's where I think that gold, if I may I'll just finish up on that topic, is specifically interesting. Gold has been the barometer of inflation for a long time. It certainly isn't acting like it now. And I think that that's because one of the main mechanisms of that clock currently is out of order. That mechanism being industrial demand for gold and consumer demand for gold. 70% of the gold that is produced around the world goes into the jewelry market. People, um, uh, and, t- you know, I would, I mean, forgive me, I'm from, you know, but like mostly women buy gold, you know, to, to uh, as, as, as part of the way that, they, you know, to, to basically in the form of jewelry, which they like to wear. And you buy jewelry and you wear jewelry when you're interacting with others. Um, uh, and because of lockdowns still in effect, um, uh, if not formally, then at least mm. uh, uh, personally around the world, you know, jewelry sales are down up to, you know, 40% depending on the geography year over year, right? And so I think that when we come out of this and people begin to circulate, you have a double whammy of, it's, it's astounding if you think about it that the gold price hasn't crashed, given the fact that, like, over 50% of sales go into a sector where demand is down like 40% year over year. So I've been thinking about getting a. I've been back. thinking about getting a grill myself, but I wasn't able to get out, and I might do it now. It's not just the women, you know. Sometimes I, I like to rock buy, some big gold way, chains. I, you could pull it off, uh, you know. Maybe a Jesus with the ruby eyes—that's always a good look. That never goes out of style. <laughs> but all joking aside, I mean, it's astounding to me. Uh, you can buy. You can go to Sotheby's or Christie's or auction houses, and you can buy big, admittedly gaudy. You know, uh, um, gold, uh, uh, jewelry, or whatever, for like less than the cost of the actual metal. Um, uh, and so I think that there's. But anyway, with gold, I do think that uh, the one part there are two things people don't think about. A, 
jewelry demand down 40% has been weighing and will continue to weigh until we basically come out of this and decide, you know, and have herd immunity or basically get to a point where we get to full circulation, whatever it takes. And I think they will get there over the next couple of years. And I'm not in a hurry for us to get there because the longer the gold price is depressed, the happier I am. I'm buying amazing companies that I'm buying at two times cash flow. You're buying the miners, right? I'm buying miners at two times cash flow, but I'm assuming that I only get 1,500 per ounce of gold. We're at 1,800 now. At 1,500, I'm buying them at two times cash flow. So, but the other thing that people don't understand about gold is, you know, quite like Bitcoin, although in the case of Bitcoin, it's artificial. In the case of gold, it's, it's, it's God made. Um, if you believe in God, that's a whole other discussion, perhaps for a Saturday. It's getting dangerous, Sunday. James. Um, We're getting dangerous here. <laughs> look, by the time you talk about grills and heavy chains, you've already, you're already, that's a good point. Trade that's on. A good point tread on dangerous territory, so I'm just following your cues. But with gold, what people don't understand is production of gold is declining, around the world is declining by 50% over the next 10 years. For every ounce of gold that we're taking out of the ground, we're only discovering 0.2 ounces. So the companies that have long reserves, long mine life in safe jurisdictions, these are ever more precious assets whose prices and valuations have never been as low as they are today. It's, it's a, you know, so we're hyper excited about the work we're doing in the space. It's a, it's a technically very difficult space to, to get your hands around. It's taken us five years to put together our internal due diligence competencies, but, but boy, it's a super attractive sector. James, go cross asset with me and let's get away from some of the gold and the commodities and take a look at Europe. I think what always stands out to me yeah. is the lower valuations in Europe. And people come on the program and they yeah. say, yeah, but valuations are lower there for a reason. Some of that is the tilt towards cyclicals and value. As we know, in the U.S., yeah. you have more of a growth waiting. With this Delta <clears throat> variant sort of creeping yeah. up, do you buy Europe just because it's value cheaper or is it cheaper for reason? Well, a, a really important question. You know, some of the most – look, we, I've been investing in Europe for most of my uh, – for 25 years now. Um, um, uh, and that's what I live and eat and breathe. And uh, here's one sort of unofficial answer to the reason why you buy Europe. So much more fun to visit companies in Italy than in Idaho or Iowa. And no offense to my friends in I- Idaho and Iowa, but I think everybody agrees that. Italy is just a much more fun part of the world to go to. But there are a lot. Here are a couple of things. So the most sophisticated investors, we point. The fact is European markets have never traded at this kind of discount to the U.S. markets, right? Since the American New York Stock Exchange was, was created in 1792, valuation discrepancy has never been as high as it is today. It was a little bit higher uh, uh, um, earlier this year. I think it peaked in January, but it's declined. By, by, by 5% since. And so some of the most thoughtful people will come back and say, well, that's just because America is just much more greatly weighted towards technology and faster growing companies, right? But in fact, if you look at cross industry analysis, which we've done, you look at, there, is, there isn't a single industry where the average company in Europe is trading at a 20% or lower discount compared with its peers in North America. And by the way, margins, tax rates, cash flow profiles, very comparable at this point. So I think that from that perspective, in a world that, um, like it or not, is ever more um, uh, um, integrated globally, we're buying some of the biggest waste management companies in the world that happen to be based in Europe at, yeah, like, you know, single-digit multiples of EBITDA. Here in North America, in the U.S., we're buying the same companies at 20 times plus. You know, it's, yeah. it's just... So I, there's a valuation arbitrage that is impossible to ignore. And I think that for us, there are so many ways to answer your question. But for us, 
the answer ends up being a micro one. It depends on the company. Are there to release value back to investors? Maybe the company is just kind of, you know, we're buying tech companies in Europe. Like we're buying some of the leading software companies in the world in fields that are going at 25, 30% a year. We're buying them at three times revenues, 10 times normalized earnings. You know, these companies, if they just delist in Europe and relist in North America, you could see theoretically a tenfold increase in valuation. So it, it's just it's yep. pretty nutty and it's as nutty as it's ever been. If that James, and, and it's been nutty having you on, but fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to point out that I once interviewed Mr. T on Bloomberg Television, and that guy was wearing like 40 pounds of, of gold chains. So news you can use, Matt. Now let's get over to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Retail Analyst Poonam Goyal. She joins us on the phone from the Garden State. Poonam, let's let's talk about the consumer sentiment number. I mean, was it a shocker to you to see consumer sentiment fall by this much? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a surprise. But if you put things into perspective, we are dealing with high inflation right now. And the Delta variant is rising. So it's not too much of a surprise to see that the consumers are getting worried what's coming next. You know, do they have to worry about not having things in stock again because shipment delays around the globe are delaying deliveries of some essential, some non-essential items. So there's a lot still moving that the consumer is not sure about. That said, we do think that the consumer is still spending. I mean, we're seeing people travel more. We're seeing people eat out more. We are seeing people spend more, whether it's in stores or even online. Poonam, you know, it was interesting. This week when we had Disney earnings come out, we were thinking of how well that portrays where the consumer is right now, whether we're staying home or literally going out to theme parks. How are you taking that as we push forward to TJ Maxx, Walmart, Ross, Target, Lowe's, Home Depot next week. I know, of course, in your coverage, you're keenly focused on TJ Maxx and Amazon and others. Where is the health of the consumers? We think about retail sales and where they are shopping and, and what that is telling us. Sure. So I think there's two things to think about as these retailers report next week. One is the tougher comparisons that they're all up against from last year, because last year in 2Q, was when online shopping surged, especially for retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's, where you did a lot of do-it-yourself and a lot of home renovation. So they're up against a very tough comparison. In light of that, though, still, we do see spending being robust and that people are still continuing to spend on their home. So while things may dip a little on a relative basis, there is still strength in that space, partly driven by inflation also, where we have seen prices go up. So when you move forward and you look at like a Walmart and a Target, I think it's a little bit of a mixed situation where online sales will be pressured because of the tougher comparisons that they have from last year. But we do still expect to see sales um, rise. And that's predominantly driven by increased traffic in stores. And also as consumers go out and spend more on discretionary items, which is apparel, home, toys, et cetera, and back to school, all categories that have a higher margin element to it. So it'll be interesting to see the dynamics and how they play out between a Walmart and a Target. Um, But we do think that you will still see underlying consumer strength on an overall basis. And then when you look at TJ Maxx and Ross, there it's not a story of tougher comparisons because last year in 2Q, their stores were actually closed. 
So they're expected to propose some very robust, robust numbers, not just over 2020, but even over 2019. For example, at TJX, we're actually expecting to see an acceleration in the pace of gains versus 1Q and 2Q. TJ Maxx here in Europe is actually called TK Maxx. That is correct. It's kind of weird until you get used to it. I don't know why, because I think TJ Maxx works well. It's like someone's name, TJ Maxx. But TK Maxx, <laughs> what's that? I guess you don't spend as much time thinking about it as I do. In any case, um, Poonam, thank you so much for joining us. Poonam Goyal, senior U.S. retail analyst, uh, covering those companies as we uh, await a, a, a slew of retail earnings and we see what consumer sentiment, uh, what, what inflation expectations do to consumer sentiment. I will point out that, you know, 3%, I feel like that's still bang in line with the historical average, right? So. We're just used to such low inflation yeah. over the past decade, Taylor. I'm still trying to get over the hard questions you asked Poonam, TKX. TK Max. Coming in hot with those strong Why? questions, Matt. Why is it TK Max? Anyway, I'll find out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.